This is not about numbers, doing these numbers versus doing those numbers. This is about reaffirming the primacy of words over the claims on our attention made by numbers. Reaffirming the primacy of relationships over the claims of transactions. Reaffirming the primacy of nutrition over the claims of cheap calories. Reaffirming the primacy of places over the claims of markets. Reaffirming the primacy of generations and seasons over the claims of milliseconds and algorithms. Reaffirming the primacy of putting back in over the claims of taking out. I'm Woody Tash, uh, author of a few books about slow money and nurture capital and uh, uh, chairman of the Slow Money Institute. That is an excerpt from my new book, Soil, Notes Towards the Theory and Practice of Nurture Capital. It's a kind of a sequel to uh, inquiries into the nature of slow money, investing as a food farms and fertility matter, my first book. After 10 years of running around mostly the U.S., but a few other countries, speaking to lots of people in groups large and small about the possibility of really developing and sharing a whole new vision of how we use our money locally, but even more local than that, the soil, all the way down to the land itself and the soil and how we would, how we would value that and hold that value against the claims of markets and uh, all kinds of other fiduciary things. After 10 years of having those conversations, I finally kind of um, was able to pull back and write the second book. And um, it both goes deeper into the concept of the soil itself there's also a little play in words on there about slow opportunities for investing locally that spells soil, and that's a, a, a new group that we started in Boulder that's making 0% loans to local farmers. What is slow money? Slow money is, it's a shared vision of the importance of, and I'll say several things nested together, thinking very long-term, being patient, that's what the patience leads to the idea of slow. Thinking more about um, creating, uh, preserving and restoring soil fertility than about extracting financial returns. But all of those things, the conversation about all those things is, is something that's turned into uh, the slow money movement. It's basically a public conversation. Um, and then from that conversation, a network of networks, if you will, a bunch of small local groups have sprouted up mostly in the US, a few in Canada, a little bit in France tiny bit now in Australia, where um, groups of people who, sh who have been participating in this conversation, you could call it sharing a vision, you could call it participating in an active conversation, trying to help one another move in a radical new direction. Those conversations and that network has led to the flow of $70 million into almost 700 uh, small food enterprises, everything from uh, individual organic farms to food processing, distribution, restaurants, slaughterhouses, cheesemakers, seed companies, anything that is helping get uh, local organic produce from the producer into the local market. So it's very local, um, small dots, groups of people collaborating together actively to help one another do that. From a financial standpoint, a little bit you could say that slow money is staking out territory between investing and philanthropy. So the, the first 0% loan that our new group in Boulder gave was to um, a farm and restaurant in Boulder where the farm family has dedicated themselves to 
growing as much as possible that they serve in the restaurant from their own farm. And they were farming 200 acres and they just leased another 200 acres and they, didn't ha they had no walk-in cooler on the second farm. They only had the cooler in the restaurant. And so we lent them $12,000 so they could have a walk-in cooler on the second farm. So very, you know, fairly straightforward, I guess you'd say. Um, we made a second 0% loan to a biodynamic farm in Boulder called Aspen Moon um, that is renovating a, an old kind of ramshackle house on one of their farm properties to create uh, housing for their workers. And so we lent them $30,000 to assist them in some of the renovation. Um, there are lots of other examples that are on slowmoney.org. I mean, there are hundreds of things like lending $5,000 for a hoop house or a few thousand dollars for drip irrigation line and things like that. You know, gradually moving up to like buying a used tractor or a refrigerated truck or things like that. And then all the way, then they move up the kind of financial food chain up to small angel investments that would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then there are a few multi-million dollar investments, only a few. So it's the whole gamut, everything from very small kind of micro loans up to um, things that might be called a little bit more like angel investments. So this, this um, story arose one night in a conversation in Boulder, where I live, where I had suggested the idea of what if we donated money and made 0% loans? And we started getting into a discussion about um, financial return and impact and success. How do we measure success? So um, I found myself saying to the group, if you live next to or asking the group, I said, if you live next to a farm and the barn burns down and you're in a position to loan the, the family money to rebuild the barn, how much interest are you going to charge? Now, there's kind of a self-selection thing that goes on in the slow money rooms, so just keep that in the back of your mind. But of course, everyone goes, well, I wouldn't charge anything. And I said, well, why wouldn't you? Because the return is not the money. The return is that the farm is still there, the barn gets rebuilt. I mean, it could be any number of reasons. It could be aesthetic, like we love the barn. It could be that you're buying milk from the cows that are milked in the barn. Who knows what it is? But you want the barn back there, and you want the farm family made whole, and you're willing to lend them the money. And that's because those so-called impacts, all those other social and environmental returns that impact investors who are more institutional or institutional say they have to measure, you don't need anybody to measure them for you. Okay. So it isn't really zero. It's zero percent by arithmetic, but it's not zero percent by everything else. It's like a humongous return, right? But as soon as you and a bunch of your friends are investing in, let's say, 10 barns on 10 different farms scattered throughout a couple of counties or something, then suddenly you have a portfolio. And it's like, well, who decides which barns and which one is riskier than the other one and which one's more important and how do we blah, blah, blah. You suddenly, the arithmetic isn't enough anymore. You got to, so it gets more complicated. So if you do 10 of them and you lose one or two, but you help eight, and this, by the way, was the remainder of that same conversation. I'm not making this up. There's about 15 of us in a room. So I said, okay, were we successful or did we fail? Everyone said, you're totally successful. You helped eight farms in the river. I said, yeah, most people would call that philanthropy because we have a negative return. We lost some of our money. But what was the impact in the community? Who's going to measure that? Well, the answer is we didn't need anybody to measure it. We're just affirming we were successful. So there, there is a better way of saying all that from a traditional finance, and that would be to say that it's plus 80% philanthropy as opposed to minus 20% investing. But I don't like using that language because that's the old language. I just say it's slow money. It's nurture capital. We're not, we're not 
We don't want to do that old arithmetic anymore. I sometimes jokingly refer to it as the investing arithmetic of the 20th century. You know, but it doesn't just go away, obviously. But it's more we know why we're doing it. We want there to be more small and mid-sized organic farms in our community. We are willing to invest in that. Investing to me means leaving money in, not about how fast you can take it out. And modern investing has been all about how fast you can take it out. So there's so many different elements to the question of what your return is. Uh, zero percent is, is one form of arithmetic, minus 20 percent is another form of arithmetic, plus 80 percent is another form of arithmetic. And actually, none of the arithmetic actually matters that much because the passage you had me read was it's not about doing the numbers. It's about reaffirming the primacy of relationships over the claims of transactions. Uh, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to tell you another story because that's I've sort of collected stories because if you're going to say it's not all about the numbers, then it's got to be about something, so it ends up being about stories. So I, I was giving a, a keynote speech at the 20th anniversary of the Minnesota Sustainable Farmers Association about, I don't know, whenever, five or six years ago. And I gave a long talk. We had lunch and then we all reconvened, about 300 people, most of them farmers in the room and their families. And, and we started having a group discussion and one of the farmers said, I've been listening with interest, it's really interesting, he said, but I'm beginning, I'm thinking how would, like, how would I do it? And you're saying I would have to take a loan from some of my neighbors. He said, I don't even like most of my neighbors. And everybody laughed. And, and, I, and I was just learning as I went. I mean, we were just having a genuine conversation. I said, well, you know, you're right because transactions are hard enough, but relationships are even harder. So if you're going to add relationships to transactions, oh my God, what a headache. Right? It's going to be hard. And then I, I had, a, I had a, what I sometimes euphemistically call my aha moments, the things I've learned along the way from talking to everybody. And I said, wait a minute, how many people here are farming because it's easy? And then a really hard laugh went through, much bigger than the first one. I said, right, you're farming for all kinds of reasons. You're stuck. It's a vocation, it's a passion. There's a million reasons you're doing it, but not one of them is because it's easy. So he said, who told you that investing was supposed to be easy? So we have the world of easy investing. It's called shopping malls and smokestacks in China and sweatshops and GMO corn and whatever, high fructose corn. I don't know, whatever, you, know, you just add all the things in there you want that the industrializa that industrialization and globalization um, has been supported by so-called easy investing, meaning investing with that you give to somebody else, and you say, you do it for me. And just give me back 5% return so I can retire, or whatever that is. Well, that's pretty easy for you, because you just give it to them, and they, you don't really know what they're doing. So if, if we are going to um, accept responsibility for the relationships, um, then the investing will not be, let's say, as easy, but it'll be more rewarding. If you give the money to someone and they don't repay, what happens? Um, in my experience, nothing bad happens. Meaning, everyone in the room has understood why they're doing it. Nobody is like looking to like foreclose on the thing or... I mean, sometimes we have collateral, sometimes we don't. Because no one, even though we might have it, it's more there as a kind of... Um, kind of a placeholder for the idea of that we'd like to try to get our money back if possible. Not because we want to go take possession of the walking cooler or whatever it is, right? So, no, there's no shaming. There's no, um, you know, I think everyone in the room has already accepted um, sh the idea of sharing risk. And so they're not, it's like we're all in it together.
you know, everybody is invested in the long-term success of the collective venture, which is supporting the next generation of organic farms in our community. So that's the long-term thing. Our SRI is definitely in that, and we know we're going to have failures along the way. And it's not, you know, you can do everything right and get hailed out. You can make a lot of stupid business decisions. You can, you know, put, you know, put, bet your whole business on selling to one large retailer who shall remain unnamed, um, and get screwed. So someone looking back on it, go, that was stupid. But you know, was it stupid? Who knows? Every, you know, most small businesses fail. This is the other thing. Farming is risky for all kinds of reasons above and beyond just normal business risk because a lot of times it doesn't rain or whatever. But that doesn't mean it's inherently more risky than any small startup at a local business. Small businesses fail at a fairly high rate. It's hard. Being an entrepreneur is really hard. Being a farmer is a very unusual kind of entrepreneur. So that's a long way of saying there's no shame in failure um, and there really is an ethos of shared risk in the room that um, seems to get us through all these. Now, whether, you know, I, I can't speak to all 698 or whatever the number of transactions that have happened everywhere that there have certainly been some pissed off people here and there on both sides. But by and large, I can honestly, I can say for sure that it's a very small minority of, of the situations. You know, anybody who has any money in a bank or a mutual fund, um, any kind of sort of institutional securitized financial instrument doesn't know where all their money is. Um, now, there are impact investing funds that are doing their best to screen out certain things like they won't invest in oil stocks or they um, won't invest in nuclear or tobacco or, or companies that have more than a certain percentage of money from uh, arms manufacturer. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different uh, what are called in the investment industry negative screens, things you don't want in there. And then there are positive screens, which are things like uh, you know, women on the board of directors or um, um, working in disadvantaged communities, you know, uh, having either manufacturing or sales in communities that are disadvantaged. So that there's, a, there's a bunch of social and environmental screens that impact investors use. But it is still the case, almost without any doubt, like I'll give one example, almost every socially responsible fund still owns Coca-Cola. And you say, how can that be? They're selling soda water to, you know, poor people all over the world and getting them hooked on sugar water and getting, making them unhealthy. Because there are certain parameters that Coca-Cola meets that allows enough of the managers to check it off. And guess what? They're making a lot of money, so they want it in the portfolio because they might be invested in 100 companies, let's say, in the portfolio, and they need something from the fast food sector and something from the oil patch. So it's kind of a crazy game because, and the reason is they're starting with the numbers. They're saying we have to make 5%, we have to make 7%, we have to make the industry benchmark. Soon as you do that, you are forced to put things in that portfolio that are either very weak or somewhat compromised or actually greenwashed in some cases. But I'm not accusing anybody of greenwashing. I'm just saying, you know, if I signed up for that job, I would have to do the same thing. If I'm promising I'm going to make 7%, I sure I'm not going to make it investing in local organic farms, that is for sure. So if you just use that as the whole other end of the continuum, right? So the first part of this is for people to just admit that's true. They don't know where all their money is. It's no matter how beautiful the people they hire to manage their money is or the fund that they choose, it is going to have some money in sweatshops, 
and smokestacks in China and GMOs and junk food and maybe even tobacco because the portfolios are so diversified and so big that they almost by definition end up in there even if it's by accident. It could be just a division of a company. It could be a very large company. You know, if a $10 billion company has a $100 million division, and but the rest of it seems okay. So, so that's just the way it is. So the, you have to recognize it's like, wow, I'm not really in control of my money, neither is my money manager really. So then once you realize that, then you have to decide how much you care. And that's not said facetiously because you just have to decide how much do you care about that. Um, and then you have to say, do I care enough to take some of my money consciously out of that easy investing world where I'm just giving it to somebody else and hoping they won't do anything too horrible with it versus I want to take the money and put it to work directly in my community doing something really positive. And I would argue the most positive thing you can do is make a loan to a farmer. It's the most tangible. It's never going to be public company. It's never going to move away. The land is there. The farmer may move away, but the land isn't going anywhere. It's very place-based, very tangible, and the rewards are immediate in terms of you can see food growing there, and, and you can understand that fertility is being grown, if you want to use that word, in the soil and preserved in the soil. So you have to decide, let's say, how much that means to you, how much of your time you're willing to spend on, because it takes more time. It's not as easy as the other. Um, as far as the actual, let's say, if the question is like, how would someone start doing slow money investing on their own, I would say, um, you know, it's kind of hard by yourself because going through that whole thought process by yourself takes a lot of gumption. It's a lot better, you know, misery loves company or, or shared learning is beautiful or shared risk is beautiful. So you want to do it with some friends where you can do it over a period of time and share learning and, and kind of be comfortable and be confident that you're building something for the future. So I, I actually just gave a long argument for the why the soil experiment we're doing with the 0% loans and the philanthropy or the donations, I should say, is a good model because I think building something together with a bunch of your friends and neighbors for the long-term benefit of the community is so much more satisfying than doing it by yourself. That's, what, that's, that's why I gradually came up with that model. It was just after watching, doing a lot, and watching a lot of slow money investing. You know, I mean, yes, it is wildly satisfied. I'll just give another story. I drove down the street about three years ago with two checks for $5,000, one from me and one from a neighbor, to lend to a farmer to put irrigate, drip irrigation in a new uh, couple acres. I don't remember how many acres it was. And he needed the money for 90 days. It was the beginning of the season. And he paid us back 90 days later, 0%. I didn't know that at the time. I was just driving down the street. And I was like, had this big grin on my face the whole way down, the whole way while I was giving him the money. That grin was actually bigger than when he gave, I'm not making this up, that was actually bigger than when he gave it back, but I was really happy when he gave it back. I said, oh, look, it worked, it's great. So, but it's still hard as an individual, you know, it's hard to maintain that energy, right? You have to spend a lot of time, energy, whatever. So that's why slow money has emerged in, in collective, you know, collections, I should say, of, of people. So you have, you know, most of the groups have a few dozen regular stalwarts who get together, let's say, at least every other month, sometimes once a month. And they get to know each other and they get to know what's going on and they, they there's like cohesion. You know, so called so called social capital. Sometimes people use that term, but that's a, a little stilted, I think. But it's you know, friendships, um, shared risk. And anybody can do it. That's so I'm I'm sort of speaking out of both sides of my mouth. Anybody can do it. It's not rocket science, it just takes 
some clarity of vision and some stick to to realize it's going to take you some time to do it. It definitely takes more time. And uh, a very smart person in a recent public conversation said, talked about investing yourself versus investing money. And that's a big part of it. It's, it's what does it mean to invest? If investing means just giving your money to some stranger so they can grow the money arithmetically, that's one kind of investing. If investing means taking time and energy and committing yourself to something because it, it's a cause you believe in, that's a different kind of investing. I, I don't think it's too much to say that a small organic farmer in today's world, going against all the headwinds of globalization and industrialization and consumerism and commodification and you know, buy low, sell high, and all those things. They are like just going, I don't know if we want to say 180 degrees against it, certainly at a 90 degree angle, but maybe 180 degrees against it. Saying, no, we're doing this. We know this is important. And I, you know, I think reconnecting people to one another and the places where they live through their food and through the soil. My new book, does start with a 20-page, what I call quasi-mythic poem, and the word hero and myth and whatever is saying. Um, because I do think there's a kind of a, almost a mythic, I know it sounds really hokey, but there's almost a level of questioning some of the most fundamental assumptions we have about our species and religion and economics and all this stuff. I mean, it does almost rise to the level of myth. But so, so I, I started my new book with a very provocative and playful 20-page of what I refer to as quasi-mythic poem. But there's one, there's one real person in there, and the real person is Masanobu Fukuoka. If I, if I, I always get the name a little wrong. Who was a real person. He's no longer alive. But he's kind of a pioneer of what you say deep organic permaculture vision of, of agriculture, of, of farming it, um, as wildly and as naturally as possible. And in his book, The One Straw Revolution, which is kind of a, a little bit of a manifesto for an early wave of organic farmers, he wrote the following sentence, which I have him saying in the mythic poem to a bunch of gods and goddesses. I hope what I just said is intriguing and people will want to figure out what, what that all is. But what he says is so beautiful. He says, the true purpose of farming is not the growing of food, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. Now that's pretty heroic. So, um, now really, small farmers don't need to hear any encouragement from me, I don't think. The only thing that could be encouraging is that there are, there's a small but growing group of people who highly value what, no, I, that's not even true. The number of people who value what they're doing is pretty large. Translating that into financial action, there's a big gap there. And so the consumer part is obvious, that's slow food and a whole bunch of other people who are mobilizing consumers to intentionally drive their consumer dollars. So we're kind of coming up fast, or not fast, coming up slowly um, with the investor part, saying we got to bring our investor dollars there, which I do think in a certain way is, I'm not going to say it's more fundamental, but it's as fundamentally important. Because if we buy all of our food from a CSA or a farmer's market, but our money's invested in the industrial system, we're kind of, you know, which, are we healing more or are we doing more harm? Hard to know. We're certainly compromising deeply that which we're trying to do. So, so I, if this is encouraging, I'd like small farmers here. We are, I, I'm quite sure from my experience in Slow Money to date, which came after 35 years of, of lots of other stuff and finance of different kinds, um, meaning I may be crazy, but I'm not young and crazy. So I've been at it for a while. 
I am convinced there are many millions of people, how many, it's hard to say, but many millions of people who really want something like this to happen. They want to reconnect. They want to bring their money back down to earth. They want to fully value things in the earth and in their community. And it's it's hard at the beginning. I mean, we're just at the beginning. It's hard, but I think this is a generational shift. In the, so we all just have to keep at it. Thank you.